From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this President's Day edition of Washington Watch. We believe President Putin has made the decision, but until uh, the tanks are actually rolling and the, and the, the planes are flying, uh, we will use every opportunity and every minute we have uh, to see if uh, diplomacy can still uh, dissuade uh, President Putin from carrying this forward. That was Secretary of State Anthony Blinken yesterday on CNN's State of the Union, commenting on the increasingly tense situation in Ukraine. We'll talk with Missouri Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, also the Kansas City Star, running with a headline, quote, Hartzler launches transphobic ad targeting transgender college swimmer. What's that about? We'll talk about that as well with Vicki when she joins me in just a moment. And it's official. And now... I have to mark the end of this unforgettable Olympic experience. I declare the 24th Olympic Winter Games Beijing 2022 closed. That was Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee. The Winter Olympics 2022 are now over, but... We are not finished. Today in our final Olympics 2022, Human Rights on Ice, was the Olympic stage what the Chinese Communist Party had hoped for, an opportunity to recast their international image? We'll get an answer from Asian expert and author Gordon Chang later on Washington Watch. Well, even as COVID infections decline and 70% of the public say it's time to accept COVID, that it's here to stay and get on with life. President Biden announced he is extending the COVID national emergency that was set to expire the 1st of March. We'll check in with Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, who has introduced legislation to give doctors and not bureaucrats the right to treat their patients. He joins us later with the details on Washington Watch. And it is shocking what is happening in Canada. If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. We, we, this investigation will go on for months to come. That was interim Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell over the weekend. We'll talk with Rachel Emanuel, a reporter for iPolitics who was on Parliament Hill in Ottawa and witnessed the totalitarian tactics of the Trudeau regime. And finally, election reform. States are back at it with more election reform measures being introduced this year than last year, driving the left crazy. Jason Sneed, executive director of Honest Elections Project, provides us with an update from the states. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you miss anything or you want to share it with your friends, it can all be found there at TonyPerkins.com. From today's Stand on the Word Bible reading plan, we have... Exodus 36, 31.6, which reads in part, I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you, end quote. That was the Lord speaking to Moses about the building of the tabernacle. The skills of the craftsmen were given to them by God and they were to be used to honor and glorify God. Every believer, no matter their profession, is to use their God-given skills 
to honor him. To find out more about the Bible reading plan, go to frc.org slash Bible. Once again, I invite you to join me each morning, Monday through Friday, for a short devotional from the Daily Reading. You can join me on Facebook at Tony Perkins or at my website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, just a couple of hours ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed decrees recognizing Ukraine's breakaway region as part of Russian territory, a move to which U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken previously promised a swift and firm response. Secretary Blinken said the move would amount to Russian government's wholesale rejection of its earlier commitments. Based on what we've seen so far from the Biden administration, how might the U.S. respond? Well, join me to talk about this and more is U.S. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler. She is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. She represents the 4th Congressional District of Missouri. Congresswoman Hartzler, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. It's good to be here. All right. Can we get your thoughts on the latest developments in the Ukraine situation? Oh, it's very serious and it's very heartbreaking. You know, this is a free and independent people, a democracy, and many of them are Christians. And the thought that you have a thug like Vladimir Putin that just wants to, through raw power, take this country is just absolutely heartbreaking. And the weakness of our own president has sadly, I think, only enabled this uh, to take place after what President Biden did with the debacle of leaving Afghanistan. Uh, it just showed how weak we are. And this president has not uh, negotiated in good faith with Putin from the beginning. He's acquiesced. And now we're at a, a doorstep of, of losing this nation um, and their freedom being squashed. It's truly a dark day. Uh, Congresswoman Hartzler, the, the big divide between Republicans and Democrats in Congress over this issue, I mean, they're, they're, they're unified on the fact they want to help Ukraine, they want to support uh, Ukraine. But the idea of sanctions, Republicans feel like the sanctions should be put in place now to deter any further action by Russian, uh, Russian forces. But the Biden administration says, oh, you can only use them once, so we're going to wait until afterwards. What good will sanctions do after they invade? Oh, it's ridiculous. It doesn't even make any sense. No, I, I believe they do need to be putting sanctions on them right now. You don't wait until perhaps tens of thousands of people are killed and missiles have been launched and airplanes attack and drop bombs and ships shoot off missiles and tanks invade your country and then put in sanctions. Now is the time to uh, sanction them and to tell Putin, if you want these sanctions removed, then move your troops and your tanks and your airplanes away from the border. Then we can sit down and talk. Uh, that's what we should be doing right now. Is this another example of the fallout of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the implications of this showing weakness that, uh, you know, our enemies just don't take us serious as a nation? No, we are at a place, sadly, where our allies don't trust us and our enemies don't fear us because of the, the weak hand that President Biden has shown and this terrible debacle in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, we were working with other nations to try to bring freedom to the people of Afghanistan to root out the terrorist uh, strongholds there that were used to attack our nation on 9-11. And here... The president had no plan. He left over $90 billion of equipment there. He didn't get the Americans out. He left people his own country. He uh, left the interpreters 
And it was just mayhem. And because of that, Putin has only been emboldened. But there's been other mistakes that Biden has made. You know, the criminals that work at the, at the behest of Putin uh, took out through cyber attack the colonial pipeline uh, earlier that, uh, Jeff, that shut down the whole energy on the East Coast. And what was the response of Biden? He says, well, I talked to Putin and, and he promised not to do it again. But if he crossed the line, if he gets some really, really bad things, then we're going to act. And then he talked to him about getting back in the INF Treaty. He shut down our Keystone Pipeline and then green-lighted the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, for Russia. So at every turn, he has acquiesced to Biden. He has shown weakness and Putin's taken advantage of it now. And there's going to be millions of people in Ukraine who are going to be hurt because of it. Right. Unfortunately, uh, many innocents will pay the price for that weakness. I want to switch gears, uh, Congresswoman Hartzler. The Kansas City Star ran uh, with a headline entitled, Hartzler launches transphobic ad targeting transgender college swimmer. After you ran an ad last week, I want to play a short clip of that ad. Play clip number four, please. I'm Vicki Hartzler. I ran and coached girls track, and I won't look away while woke liberals destroy women's sports. Women's sports are for women, not men pretending to be women. Well, you know what? That seems pretty timely now, given that the Ivy League championships that took place over the weekend where Leah Thomas, the transgender athlete in the ad, broke records and beat the competition. What's your reaction uh, to Thomas's performance and to uh, the Kansas City Star? Oh, it is heartbreaking for the female athletes that have worked their entire life to be able to get to this spot where they are competing at the collegiate level and then to have someone who is a male but believes that he's a female come in and compete on their same team and defeat them, take their medals, take their record-setting opportunities away. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And our country, and the elites certainly, just seem to have gone insane. Uh, they have just lacked basic common sense and that girls' sports is supposed to be for girls, not for biological males who think they are girls. I mean, it's just common sense, and yet we are seeing this so that they are allowing more and more of these individuals to compete against girls' sports. The whole purpose of Title IX, which passed years ago, was to make sure that females had the opportunity to participate and succeed in sports. Sports meant a lot to me uh, growing up. I played basketball and volleyball and I ran track. I did have the opportunity to set some track records at Archie High School, my little hometown. But then I went on to coach track when I became a teacher. And I'm so proud of these female athletes and I will not be silenced. Uh, by liberals who think that we should just acquiesce to this and sit by silently and let these uh, transgendered athletes take our girls' first place medals and, and set the records. It's just wrong. And the Kansas City Star is clearly wrong. I believe that I'm speaking common sense, what most people in Missouri believe, and that girls' sports should be for girls. Uh, it, it's as you said it's common sense. I was actually in the swimming pool this morning uh, swimming and um, of course I, I could put a two-piece bathing suit on. I still wouldn't be any better than I am. But I'm just doing it to, to stay in shape. But the reality is this is an issue of fairness. I mean, common sense, yes, but fairness. We're depriving young girls of opportunities to, to do well. I mean, we know, all right, we know men are biologically different than women. 
doesn't mean they're superior. It just means they're different, they're stronger, and they have the ability to compete in athletics with an advantage. That's why we have women's sports, is it not? Oh, abs absolutely. And we had, there were 16 girls on the same team as, as Leah Thomas, who sent a letter protesting uh, his his uh, ability to compete against them and asking the Ivy League to not recognize them because in the letter they point out that he transgender he, he transitioned after his uh, puberty and so they point out that he has greater muscle capacity greater height greater uh, strength with his um, arms and the ability to reach out further um, and he also has greater lung capacity. Those things are critical components to be able to perform while you're swimming. And it is unfair to allow uh, him to compete against the females who have worked for their whole life for this opportunity. It is about fairness. And this is about um, feminism too. I, I have been proud of some of the liberal feminists who are speaking up now. Uh, we're finding common ground that yeah. this is wrong. Uh, women's rights, you know, should prevail in this case. And every woman, no matter your political uh, affiliation, should be standing up for these girls on these uh, sports teams. Well, Congresswoman Hartzler, I appreciate your courage to stand up and face the, the laugh that, you know, they, they deny reality and they want to attack anyone who says, look, this is common sense, shouldn't be happening. Thank you for uh, for speaking up and thanks for being on the program today. Always good to see you. You too. Thanks, Tony. All right, coming up, we're going to wrap up our Human Rights on Ice series and speak with China expert Gordon Chang on the other side of the break. So don't go away. A lot more Washington Watch to come on this President's Day edition. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God and not merely the words of men? What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this. And that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. Here's a moment of Hope for Your Home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Some of the most profound statements are created with just a few words. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. Love never fails. The Bible goes on to say faith, hope, and love are important, but the greatest is love. It also says that God is love. Simple statements, but with profound implications. The Bible says that all the earth and creation speak of the love of God. The skies and the stars show His love. It also says that you are an expression of the love of God. And you may not recognize it, but He shows His love for you all the time. The only element in the universe that will carry you for eternity is the love of God and your response to His love. 
Parents, teach your family that only in a relationship with Jesus will they find true, pure, unfailing love. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. Here's some great news. If you miss the deadline to sign up for health insurance, or if like a lot of people, you just have a plan you're not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. It's a Christian healthcare sharing program. There are more than 400,000 members now, and they love it. In fact, MediShare has double the customer satisfaction rate compared to that of health insurance. And MediShare really is the gold standard when it comes to healthcare sharing. It's been around more than 25 years. Members have shared more than $4 billion of each other's medical bills. Plus, MediShare is for you. It has saved its members billions by advocating on their behalf. Best of all, the typical savings for a family is around $6,000 a year. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. MediShare has a 98% customer satisfaction rating, and you are invited to be part of it. Call now. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. Beijing 2022. Human rights on ice. The 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing have officially concluded. During yesterday's closing ceremony, the president of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, lavished praise on China, saying that they had, quote, set the stage in such an excellent way and using words like outstanding and magnificent, ordinary, extraordinary and truly exceptional to describe what the Chinese Communist Party put together. But my next guest will probably have some other adjectives to describe the handiwork of the CCP. Joining me now to wrap up our special Human Rights on Ice series is China expert Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and the Great U.S.-China Tech War. He can be found on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Tony. And the word that went through my mind, that adjective, was despicable. Well, let's talk about that, because what the Chinese Communist Party had hoped was, uh, as Mr. Bach had described, hoping that the world would see China in such a way. They had the international stage uh, for nearly two weeks. Did the Communist Party of China succeed in whitewashing their image? Maybe internally, but certainly not externally, because what they did, Tony, was to give a bigger platform to the critics of China. It gave people the opportunity to talk about genocide, atrocities, crimes against humanity, talked about totalitarian social controls at home. This was really a a scene actually for people to talk about China in a realistic way. So, no, externally, um, this was a debacle for Beijing. Nothing like what we saw back in 2008 when they had the Summer Olympics. Uh, Of course, it's a different country now. They've been able to uh, basically lock ranks in uh, their their grip uh, that the Communist Party has on the Chinese people is much stronger. But I think you're absolutely right. I know you were busy over the last couple of weeks and most uh, human rights experts as well speaking out using this platform. Uh, Is this reflective in the lackluster numbers of uh, viewers for the Beijing Olympics? Tony, I'm really stunned by that because I thought that the Olympics in China, with all of these issues surrounding it, would have meant record uh, viewership on NBC. 
but that obviously was not the case. There was a record, but it was record low. So I'm really surprised about that. Um, you know, it's one of those things where um, to borrow something, a word from another religion, um, I actually do believe there's karma in the world and NBC suffered it. Well, they certainly didn't use their platform to draw attention to the abuses of uh, the Communist Party there in China. Uh, but let's talk about corporate America. Um, what do you think has been the, the, the coming out of corporate America through the Olympics? What, what messages are they sending? Well, they sent two messages. I mean, internally, they actually, companies like Coca-Cola uh, inside China were actually heavily promoting their sponsorship of the Olympics. But externally, they were silent. And I think that's a real indication that these companies knew that what they were doing was wrong, that what they were doing was complicit in these crimes against humanity. And so they did not want to highlight their role as backing the Olympics and therefore backing China and therefore backing what China has been doing against Uyghurs, Tibetans, and other minorities. You know, Gordon, public awareness, public sentiment reaches a tipping point when there are those that continually speak about these issues. And it, it, it would be clear to me, uh, and of course, I'm very close to it, so maybe maybe I'm a little biased, but it appears to me that there is a growing momentum in terms of the uh, concern that the international community is showing regarding what is happening in China, not only to the Uyghurs, to the Falun Gong, uh, to the Tibetans, and to the, the House Christians that are also being targeted by the Chinese Communist Party. Are we, are we nearing a tipping point in terms of the international outcry against China? I actually think that we are. And part of it, Tony, is not just that there's been an accumulation of news about China, but during these Olympics, China actually highlighted its role against Uyghurs, against um, India, against, for instance, um, health. Um, they highlighted uh, their, their role in spreading COVID-19 beyond China by having Director General Tedros of the World Health Organization be one of the torchbearers. So I think that essentially Beijing is now so arrogant that it wants to rub this in our faces that it's trying to intimidate us. And that is creating the tipping point that you're talking about. And so I would think that because, you know, we really can't touch the Communist Party of China, but all of those who are complicit in their agenda and in their, their abuse of human rights, corporate America, uh, the political class, Hollywood, and others who are aiding and abetting the Communist Party, I would think that they are vulnerable. They are vulnerable because what they have done is they've mortgaged their future and put it into the hands of a regime. That regime is going to do things that and has already done things, of course, that Americans abhor. And that means that NBA, Hollywood, Walmart, all of these big institutions and companies now have been identified and have placed their future in the hands of people they can't control and people who are monsters. And so still, the, the American people who care about basic human rights, uh, especially, I would say to our audience, Christians who do not want to see other people persecuted for their religious beliefs, one of the things you do is you, uh, you, you stop buying products from China that 
in some cases are made, at least in the supply chain, uh, slave labor or, or forced labor used in those products. I mean, we can make a difference by the way we spend our money. Absolutely. Um, with our everyday purchasing decisions, we can strike a blow for freedom and democracy and for freedom of religion and for all the things that we believe in. We can also make that decision with our investments, not investing in right. China, telling our investment managers, no, don't put your money in stocks X, Y, and Z. And we can do a number of small things. Each of us, you know, there's just so many of us. There's more of us than them. And collectively, we do wield great power. Yes, and it's important that we teach corporate America a lesson. And uh, I know they're motivated by money. And so we get their attention and maybe keep them focused uh, more on the straight and narrow. No promises, but we can do our best. Gordon Chang, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on our final segment of Human Rights on Ice. Thank you so much, Tony. All right, folks, stick around. More Washington Watch to come. President Biden has announced that he is continuing the national emergency that was declared back in March 2020. We'll be talking to Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Don't go away. Here's Dan Celia with today's Stewardship Moment. Do you know anybody that has said, I will trust you with my immortal soul, but I won't trust you with my perishable material possessions? Have you ever wondered why Jesus warned about the perils of riches, even urging the rich young ruler to dispose wealth because it had become his God? Of course, as believers, we recognize that this man was not lost or saved in proportion to his poverty or wealth. He is saved in spite of them. At the same time, we should recognize that a person of great means has a greater responsibility in that his coming to Christ also includes his wealth. You've just heard a stewardship moment with Dan Celia of Financial Issues Ministry, helping you plan, give, and invest wisely. For more information, log on to financialissues.org. That's financialissues.org. Who says you can't have your cake and eat it too? If you're like a lot of people, you would like to support the culture-changing efforts of the American Family Association. But there's the very pressing reality that your income must meet your current needs as well as act as seed for future income, either for the short term or for life. A charitable gift annuity might be your answer. A charitable gift annuity offers a unique method for both planning ahead for permanent income and supporting the work of the American Family Association. An AFA Foundation representative will walk you through the details of creating a charitable gift annuity, allowing you to decide if a charitable gift annuity is right for your individual financial situation. Connect with us today by calling 800 326-4543, extension 345, or visit us online at afafoundation.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Check it out. On Friday, President Biden announced that he is continuing the national emergency that was declared by former President Trump back on March 13, 2020. Now, regarding, this is all about the coronavirus. Now, this is despite the fact that, look, uh, infection rates are down. 
70% of the American public says, look, it's time just to decide we got to live with this and let's go on with life. And many, even blue state Democratic leaders are saying enough of this, we've got to move on. Well, in his notice, he stated the COVID-19 pandemic continues to cause significant risks to the public, to the health and safety of the nation. But are we really in a similar position to where we were back in March 2020 when COVID-19 was new and there was no vaccine and we didn't know how to treat it? Joining me now to discuss this and more is U.S. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who is a member of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and a member of the Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. Senator Johnson, welcome back to the program. Hello, Tony. Great to be back. All right, so what's your response to the president continuing this national emergency declaration? I don't understand why he's doing it. Uh, again, you go back two years, there's so much we didn't know about uh, the coronavirus, uh, COVID the disease, uh, but we've learned an awful lot. There's still a lot we don't know, but we've learned an awful lot. And I think one of the things we've learned is this isn't gonna go away. So does the president expect to keep America in a perpetual state of emergency, a perpetual state of fear? Uh, I think the biggest blunder of our response to COVID was the fact that we did not robustly explore early treatment. Uh, I talked to doctors that successfully treat patients, so they've been doing so for the last two years. They've been saving lives. And yet our, our healthcare agencies, uh, I call them now the COVID cartel, the administration, the agencies, big pharma, the legacy media, big tech social media giants, uh, th these big, uh, the COVID cartel has prevented and sabotaged early treatment. And I personally agree with doctors who said it uh, cost hundreds of thousands of people their lives. Yeah, that's one of the things we've learned in this process that we've had bureaucrats step in between a doctor and patient and so based on that, you've actually introduced legislation, the Right to Treat Act, which says if a, if a drug has been approved by the FDA, then a physician, based upon his knowledge of his patient, should be the one to determine what treatment that patient receives, not some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. Yeah, this piece of legislation should not have been required. I champion Right to Try, which was all about giving people the freedom to use a drug that is not fully FDA approved. Uh, this just basically codifies uh, what is already should be the reality is that if there's a fully FDA approved drug, doctors have the right to prescribe that off label, which, by the way, 20 to 25 percent of all prescriptions are prescribed off label. They're, they're prescribed for a condition other than the one that uh, they're originally uh, approved to, to be used for. Uh, the other thing my piece of legislation does is says the federal federal government should not interfere and should not regulate the practice of medicine. That is up to doctors. Doctors ought to be at the top of the medical treatment pyramid. Right now, because of COVID, they're at the very bottom, and they're being crushed, and patients are being crushed. Uh, Senator, isn't that a part of practicing medicine? Isn't that how we, how we perfect the process, where we allow doctors who are treating particular diseases or ailments, that we allow them to to treat, not someone who is uh, sitting back behind some desk in Washington, D.C., calling the shots for, I have to say, from pol for political reasons. Yeah, if I'm going to go get treated for an illness, I'm going to go to a doctor that actually has the courage and compassion to treat an illness, not some bureaucrats, not some academician in an ivory tower. You know, the term practicing medicine really hit home to me when we had our first daughter who had a very serious congenital heart defect. Uh, her life was saved by doctors practicing medicine. Uh, the, the procedure they performed on her, rebaffling the upper chain of her heart, they've now advanced that to where they do the, 
the atrial switch, which was about a 50% mortality back there 38 years ago. So I am personally affected by the practice of medicine of, of doctors who've dedicated their lives to saving other lives being at the top of the medical treatment uh, chain, not at the very bottom. Well, again, speaking of things that we now know that we didn't know two years ago, according to a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pfizer's COVID-19 shot is associated with 133 times greater risk of heart inflammation for teenage boys. Isn't this something we should be concerned about, especially when we're mandating these vaccines for so many people? I've been concerned about uh, what the CDC's own safety surveillance system its early warning system has been flashing for months. Uh, back when it was like 3,000 deaths reported on VAERS. Now we're up to 23,990 deaths reported on VAERS, 1.1 million adverse events. And the, the CDC, the FDA, NIH just shrugging it off like, oh, there's nothing to see here. Again, I realize VAERS doesn't prove causation, but 30% of those deaths have occurred on days day zero, one, and two following vaccination. It's certainly something I think they ought to be exploring, something I'm concerned about. Well, Senator Johnson, I appreciate the fact that you, despite the criticism you've come under, continue to draw attention to this with the experts. It's not commentary. You're bringing the experts in to testify on a number of occasions, and we're grateful for that. And thanks for coming on today as well. Stay well. All right. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. You know, it. There is no other explanation for this. this. We have never treated another disease, another illness, another virus like this. We're, they're not following the science. It really is about power and control. And speaking of that, coming up, Canadian authorities over the weekend moved to squash the Freedom Convoy demonstrations in Ottawa. And they're vowing to chase down anyone who was there. Have they gone too far? We'll get an eyewitness report from a journalist who was on the ground there. Coming up after the break, don't go away. More Washington Watch to come. Here at FRC, we stand. We love to stand. We can't stop standing. We love standing so much, we actually removed all the chairs, couches, and stools from our premises. But that wasn't enough for us. We got USA-made 15-ounce stand mugs so that if we ever forget what to do, we're reminded by the USA-made ceramic always close at hand. Whether drinking a morning brew, sipping afternoon tea, or chowing down on dinner, everything served in a stand mug just pairs oh so well. Does a conscience that stands for faith, family, and freedom ever truly go thirsty? Get your stand mug at TonyPerkins.com and, as always, keep standing. AFR programming is now available on Alexa. You're joking, right? Nope, not joking. Seriously? Yep, this is not a drill. Wait a minute, no way. There's a way, the Alexa way. So if you just happen to miss your favorite shows, no worries. You can now listen to each podcast with Alexa. It's simple and it's free. Just visit AFR.net forward slash apps and click Alexa. We're not joking. 
Hi, I'm Mark Harrington, founder of the pro-life group Created Equal and host of Activist Radio, The Mark Harrington Show. Created Equal is all about saving the lives of unborn children. Each week, I cover the latest pro-life news and feature interviews with unsung heroes from across the nation who are making a difference for the cause of life, liberty, and justice. Join me every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 for The Mark Harrington Show here on American Family Radio and discover how you, too, can help protect the lives of the most innocent among us. Hey, this is Phil Wickham. I believe that with God, all things are possible, even freedom from addiction. I had so much social anxiety. I literally just could not bear to be in public without being drunk. At that point, I was drinking at least a liter of alcohol a day, and I went full throttle into my addiction. I had no idea who I was, and I had no idea the kind of stuff I was getting into. I'm incredibly thankful for Teen Challenge. I don't know where I'd be today without them. I'd probably be dead or in jail. It literally saved my life. And with God in this program, I finally have a purpose. For more than 60 years, Adult and Teen Challenge has been helping people find a new life in Jesus Christ. And there are centers across the country waiting to help at 855-END-ADDICTION or teenchallengeusa.org. You're listening to American Family Radio. Listening to Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. On Friday, Ottawa police began moving in on demonstrators who had been out there on Canada's Parliament Hill to protest the government's overreach and their COVID mandates. And by Sunday, the police had a firm grasp over the area. Here with me now to here with me now to tell us uh, what took place on the ground is Rachel Emanuel. She's a reporter for the Canadian digital newspaper iPolitics. Rachel, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me. Uh, all right, can you just uh, describe what you witnessed firsthand as you were there on Parliament Hill? Sure. So as you mentioned, it began on Friday. Actually, while well, on Monday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, which was going to give the police more powers to address the protesters. All levels of government had been asking them to leave for, you know, three weeks, and they showed no signs of leaving. So the government decided to forcibly remove them. So I would say the city of Ottawa was kind of holding its breath in anticipation since Monday, waiting for police action. We knew that police action was going to be coming, and we could see it sort of escalating with just the number of police that were coming into the city. Um, I remember specifically on Thursday and Friday, a lot of us here in media expected maybe there to be some action in the middle of the night. We kind of thought that would make sense just because there was, generally speaking, less protesters in the city in the middle of the night. I think that's fairly obvious, and it was just... Um, just a bit quieter, but no, the police actually did wait it until Friday midday to move. So what happened is I was kind of walking um, along Parliament Hill on Friday morning at around 11 a.m. And there was one structure there. It was a um, it was a stage. And typically throughout the week since the protesters arrived three weeks ago, there was always music playing from the stage. A lot of times there were speakers. They even had some live bands at times and people would be dancing. And that structure was directly in front of our Peace Tower, um, which is on our traditional House of Commons, which is currently under construction and it's not being used. So around 11 a.m., you know, there's people speaking, there's people dancing. And all of a sudden, one of the speakers says, you know, there is a police force coming up um, from the east, but I want everyone to know that we're here legally and I want everyone to just remain calm. So, 
people kind of knew the police were going to be coming at that point. So I walked down a little further east where the police had been kind of coming up towards the hill. And what you saw there was you had a wall of police officers um, and they were all lined up so that no one could kind of get in and out behind them. And they were just walking forward, pushing protesters up as they walked up towards the hill. And um, anyone who stood in their way was just pushed. The police did not stop. They, at the same time, would all agree to move forward and they would walk about five to eight feet every single time. And as I mentioned, for protesters that did not move, they were, they were pushed. Um, the police continued to walk forward. Um, and they continued that throughout the day on Friday. They did not get very far at all. Um, I was shocked. I left for a couple hours and I came back and they had hardly made any progress. And then this was around, I want to say, 5.30, 5, 5 p.m., 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, they were now in front of the Chateau Laurier, which is just a very famous hotel here in Ottawa and the Senate Building of Canada. And when I mentioned earlier in the day, they had been actually on the corner of the Senate Building. So they had come around the corner and up to the front of the Senate Building and the whole from like noon till 5.30 p.m. That was all the progress that they had made. Um, and it was at this time that... You saw a lot of the videos of uh, horses coming through the crowd and some two, two individuals got trampled, actually. Sorry, it looks like you want to jump in there with a question, so I'll give you a sec. Well, let me just ask you, you're, I know you had a lot of interaction with the demonstrators. Uh, what has that been like? Were the demonstrators, I mean, were they resisting the police or are they just there kind of making a statement, as you said, that they had a right to be there and they were just exercising that right? Certainly. So it was a bit of a mix. Um, you had a lot of demonstrators who definitely did not want to get caught in the police and, you know, get caught in the pushing and the action there. And so they were making it known that they were there and they thought that they had a right to be there. And so when, but then when the police came, came towards them, they backed up and then you had other demonstrators who tried to resist moving back and they would sort of keep themselves planted when police did push forward um, and sort of try to stand there, maybe shove back a little bit. Um, and then you had others in the crowd who were saying, be peaceful, be peaceful, don't fight with the officers. Um, so there was a fair mix of things, but I didn't see much demonstrator, so much violence from the demonstrators. They, at most, from what I witnessed firsthand, and obviously I was not everywhere at once, the most I saw was them trying not to move by just resisting the police when they did push forward. So prior to the police coming on to the, the scene uh, Friday and Saturday and over the weekend, did you see any other um, violent behavior among the demonstrators that had been there for a couple of weeks? Sure. So this has been something that has been talked about uh, quite a bit. And on one side of the coin, you have people who are living in the city of Ottawa who say that um, they have felt very unsafe here and they have felt very threatened since the protesters arrived um, towards the end of January. Um, I did not witness any violence in my encounters with the protesters. I um, frequently walk around Parliament Hill. I live very close to the area. Um, one of the issues that I heard was a lot of people in Ottawa like to wear their masks outside um, just for COVID reasons. And also in Ottawa, it is extremely cold here. It's between negative 20 and negative 30, probably about negative four degrees Fahrenheit, if I have that correct. So it is quite cold. Some people like to just wear masks when they walk outside because of even the winter weather being so chilly. And I definitely heard reports of people being harassed wearing masks on the street. At one occasion, I was leaving the house of the, the West Block, which is one of our parliament buildings. And I did see a woman walking around with a loudspeaker on yelling at people through the loudspeaker to take their masks off. Um, but it was just sort of like those verbal, I guess, harassment, if you could describe it as that, that I witnessed firsthand. I didn't see the protesters engage in any violence towards any residents of the city of Ottawa at any point. Rachel, final question for you, based upon what you've observed there for the last few weeks. What, what's next? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's sort of what everyone is wondering. On one hand, we have the protesters who are extremely upset. Um, they feel that they had a right to be protesting in the city of Ottawa. And for many of them, they've lost their businesses. And this was sort of the one thing that they had that they had left to do, I guess, to sort of take action and call on the government. We know that some of the truck convoys are still parked outside of the city of Ottawa about 40 minutes. Um, I did to speak to some of the truckers yesterday, and they told me they think they might do a convoy back home just to sort of be like one last hurrah for their movement. I'm hearing other talks that maybe there will still be demonstrations in Ottawa on the weekends. Um, it's hard to say what's next. We know that the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act and they haven't relinquished those powers despite the protesters now being removed from the city of Ottawa. And they're doing that, they say, because they believe there is still a threat that protesters could return. So at this point, it seems unlikely that protesters are going to be able to come to the city of Ottawa, which is still um, under police lockdown. There's still quite a few police checkpoints that you have to go through to even access the downtown core and even to get off the highway. Um, so, I mean, for the people that who came here because they wanted to have themselves heard, I don't know what's next for them. We do know that the government is also going to be following protesters who were involved, and they said that anyone who was involved with the protest um, can expect charges and repercussions for that. Well, amazing. We'll continue to watch that because it certainly sparked other efforts uh, in other parts of the world, including uh, here in the United States. Rachel, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, folks. Uh, wow, amazing. I mean, this is, um, unfortunately, I think, a foretaste of things to come. We, we see this even in our own country. I mean, Washington, D.C., for the last two years has been pretty much in lockdown. But since January the 6th, the Capitol, you know, the People's House, it, it, it takes, I'd say it takes an act of Congress to get in there. Um, it takes an act of Nancy Pelosi anytime you go in there um, to get uh, approval to go in. Look, I, I'm grateful for the, the, the truckers in Canada and, and all that I saw, and, and, and I'm sure there's always one or two that's going to, uh, to, to do things that others would not. This was, for the most part, as you heard from Rachel, uh, a, a non-violent demonstration. Nothing like what we saw at Black Lives Matter or Antifa that was burning cities during the summer of 2020. But we see this strong hand of government. Of course, we're talking about Canada, but I'm concerned about Biden even extending the state of emergency for coronavirus. Now, I know that's not uh, the same. I don't want to mix, uh, mix policies, but it does allow them to continue to mandate and control us with these COVID mandates. And, and this is what's behind all of this. So I'm, I'm grateful that we've got some convoys going here in the United States. We're going to be tracking that uh, this week. So we're going, to be, uh, we're going to be following that as that develops here in the United States. Something else I want to follow that's developing is there has been a lot of activity in state legislatures to ensure the integrity of our elections. After 2020, a lot of people concerned. And I told you, I said, look, you've got to get busy. You've got to talk to your state legislators. And they have to correct the issues that came to the forefront during this election so that you will not disengage in terms of voting. Well, here to tell us what's what he's been tracking and what we might expect going into the 2022 midterm elections and even the 2024 presidential election is Jason Sneed, executive director of the Honest Elections Project. Jason, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. 
So, Jason, last year, uh, a lot of election reform measures that went through state legislatures, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 19 states, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. But we're seeing, seeing even more this year. Tell us about it. Well, that's right. And this is actually quite unusual for, for someone who has been tracking these issues for a long time to see so much energy back to back, you know, year after year. I think it's actually something that's been long overdue, and I hope that we'll continue to see it. But this year, there are actually, if you can believe it, over 2,300 uh, bills pending in legislatures across the country, some of them carried over from last year, some new measures, all designed to do various things to improve the election process, um, at least some of them coming from the right. One of the um, uh, big issues that we've been tracking uh, is the ways in which states are improving the security for absentee and mail-in ballots. So making that mail-in balloting process work better, work more transparently, doing things like bringing voter identification requirements, which are very common sense and very popular in in-person voting, bringing those to mail-in voting as well. We're also seeing a tremendous amount of energy being put into cleaning up voter rolls and developing policies to keep them clean on an ongoing basis, which actually dovetails quite nicely with improving the mail-in voting process, because after all, you don't want to mail ballots to people who aren't eligible to vote in your jurisdiction or may in fact be dead. So that's a, a vital improvement to the process. We're talking about improving the voter registration process as well, tackling litigation and ending private funding and a whole host of other measures I'd be happy to get into. Well, Jason, it's encouraging. I think uh, I think voters should be encouraged. Those that were concerned about their ballot not being counted or somehow, uh, you know, being dismissed uh, in this last election or, um, you know, eclipsed by illegal voting. This is good news that the state legislators, state leaders have taken this on so seriously. Now, this, of course, has evoked the wrath of the left. That's why we see uh, Congress and the Democrats trying to push this federal takeover of elections. But uh, tell our, our viewers and our listeners some of the things in some of the states where these things are moving right now, where they can actually be a part of helping push this across the line. Well, that's absolutely right. The number one goal here is to improve our election system, to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat so that we're bolstering voter confidence. And a big part of this is indeed getting individuals who are, after all, voters uh, involved in this process. And there's a number of states where we're actually tracking legislation right now. Uh, some of them are big states uh, like Arizona, Florida, uh, Georgia, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin. And when I say big states, I mean these are big states in terms of national politics, right? These are the swing states that everyone uh, watches closely and engages in in presidential years. Some of these states are going to have uh, very competitive Senate races this year. So there's a lot of attention being focused into these states. There's also a lot of effort being put into them in their state legislatures to get these improvements done ahead of the next round of elections. In Florida, for instance, there is a, a measure which is moving through the legislature right now, which would do something which is not quite unique, but almost so. It would create an investigatory bureau within the state government to actually investigate instances of, uh, of alleged election crimes. And this is so important because one of the things that we know is that too often allegations of wrongdoing go uninvestigated. We know that prosecutors devote resources uh, to, to many other areas besides election law. So this is a, a potentially good step to make sure that we are 
at the very least investigating and getting answers as to whether allegations of fraud or wrongdoing are accurate and then hopefully getting prosecutions if there is fraud. And then there are other measures proceeding through the states as well. In Arizona, they're going to be improving the, um, the early voter list there. There's a, a measure that's uh, moving through the legislature to end same-day registration and a number of other provisions. And of course, in Michigan right now, there's a signature gathering process going forward called Secure My Vote, where if they actually get the requisite number of signatures, this petition goes straight to the legislature and can be enacted, which would adopt a number of, I think, improvements to state law, including bringing voter ID to absentee ballots. So, so Jason, not only does this give voters greater confidence going forward in terms of the election, but it pushes back on the narrative of the left in Washington, D.C. here, where they're wanting to say, oh, we've got to we've got to make sure we have uh, elections that everybody's vote uh, counts. I mean, the states are doing what the states should do. And this is evidence of that. And it's again, it's quite encouraging to me. Oh, it's very encouraging. I think that we should see this level of engagement every single year. You know, we have an election uh, at least every two years in this country, and we always learn lessons. And so I think it is incumbent upon our state lawmakers to look at the last election, to see where there were failures, to see where there were problems, and then to identify solutions and adopt them. And, you know, very much we want to see this at the state level, not at the federal level, but at the state level. That's right. where the, the, the founders wanted to put this power. And there's so much benefit that comes from this. States can experiment, see what works right. and replicate success while avoiding failures. And so I'm very, very glad to see this level of energy being devoted to this issue. It's so vitally important. And one thing that you brought up, the left is always saying that we need to make voting effortless. That's really what they want. They want voting to be effortless. They want to get rid of the basic safeguards that secure the process and give meaning to our vote and allow us to have confidence that election results are actually the results um, that reflect the will of the people. And so, you know, my counter to that is quite simple. You know, the, the best way to get people to vote is to show them that their ballots have meaning. Right. The left says we need to make right. it effortless. I say we need to make it easy to vote, but also hard to cheat so that you know there your you ballot go. counts. Uh, Jason, we're out of time. Uh, very quickly, where can folks find out more about the states you're tracking? Uh, go to our website, honestelections.org, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're posting a lot of up-to-date information on both of those platforms. Very good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. And folks, thank you for joining us as well. And I leave you once again with encouraging words of the Apostle Paul. He says when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.